This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello, everybody. You're listening to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. This is episode 161, entitled The Hallelujah Hymn in Revelation 19. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. We have come to the end of our study of the hymns of worship within the book of Revelation. Our goal when setting out to do this study was to better understand how early Christian monotheism was understood from the perspective of worship and singing especially in light of the Christ event and the giving of the Spirit. The hymns, positioned within the narrative of the book of Revelation, reveal much about how early Christians understood the relationship between God and Jesus. Thus far, the book of Revelation continues to express monotheism by depicting the true God, who sits on the throne as a single person, while at the same time portraying Jesus as the exalted lamb who is worthy of worship alongside the true God. We have also noticed that the Holy Spirit is completely absent from these depictions of worship. In this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, we will look at the hymn of worship within Revelation chapter 19 in order to see what it has to say about the understanding of those singers as well as the object of their worship. What does the placement of this hymn in the 19th chapter of Revelation say about the narrative's argument thus far? Who are those singing this hymn of worship, and how does the song direct those singers to act in light of their prostration? And what significance should we give to the fact that the Old Testament name of God is brought forth into the Greek of the New Testament within this worship hymn? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is looking at the Hallelujah Hymn in Revelation 19. I'm going to read the first eight verses of the 19th chapter. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who sits on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne, saying, 
Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like a voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. That's Revelation 19, verses 1 through 8. So as we've seen in many of the hymns within the book of Revelation, not all of them, but in many of them, this is a call and response hymn. There is a call portion that summons people to worship, and there is a response portion where the people respond to that initial summoning. And the people of God who participate within this worship hymn have to situate themselves either in that call portion or in the response portion based on the context. We can see that the call portion comes from the loud voice of a multitude in heaven, and this covers the first two verses. We can even see that they speak a second time within verse 3. Now the response, which is located in verse 4, comes from the 24 elders and the four living creatures. If you recall from our study of Revelation chapter 4, the 24 elders are the heavenly imagery depiction that represents the faithful people of God. So those that are ideal readers of Revelation that want to follow the application of this particular hymn would want to situate themselves within the response portion that begins in verse 4. There is a further summons to worship in verse 5. And the response to the second summoning from the great multitude covers verses 6 through 7. Now, let's talk about the context of this worship hymn. Anytime we read something within something like the book of Revelation, we always need to ask, where is this situated and how does this particular passage affect the context and the narrative around it? Every hymn in the book of Revelation has been placed within the wider narrative in order to celebrate and comment on the unfolding story presented to the original readers. This hymn immediately follows the 18th chapter. The chapter break between 18, which is a song of lament over the fall of Roman Babylon, and chapter 19 might lead readers to think that these visions are unrelated to each other. But there are some noteworthy characteristics that suggest that the two were deliberately intended to be read aside one another as parallels. Let me give you some examples. Chapter 18 describes three groups of mourners, the kings, the merchants, and the seafarers. 
These mourners grieved the destruction of Babylon. Now the hymn in chapter 19 depicts, guess what? Three groups of worshipers. The heavenly multitude, the four living creatures, and the 24 elders. These worshipers celebrate God's judgment of Babylon. We have a repeated utterance of woe in chapter 18, which is paralleled by the repeated utterance of hallelujah in chapter 19. In my opinion, the most obvious parallel is the lamentation over the city's destruction in chapter 18 and the celebration over the city's destruction in chapter 19. Chapter 18 emphatically states that Babylon was responsible for the blood of God's people, but God has now avenged the blood of his people according to the hymn in chapter 19. Another parallel is that there are no musicians to be found in the wake of Babylon's destruction, as it is portrayed in chapter 18, but... In chapter 19, worship greatly abounds in this new song. And lastly, Babylon has no place for a bridegroom and a bride, according to chapter 18. But the victory of God looks forward to the wedding day of the Lamb and his bride, namely the church, within chapter 19. So as we look at our particular hymn here in Revelation chapter 19, it is clear that it is meant to juxtapose the lamentation that was depicted in the previous chapter, in chapter 18. Now let's look at the content of our hymn. This is our second point for today, the content of the hymn of worship. Now as we've noticed, there is a repeated refrain that yells hallelujah. Now hallelujah, although it shows up as a single word in English, it is actually two words in Hebrew. Hallelujah is a plural command to praise. And at the end we have the noun yah, y-a-h, which is the shortened form of Yahweh. So Revelation 19 is the closest that the New Testament gets to citing the proper name of God, which unambiguously begins with Yah. There are no J's or E sounds at the beginning of God's personal name, as we can see here. So suggestions that God's personal name is Jehovah are immediately to be discounted. Now the shortened form, Yah, does appear within the Psalms, where we see the phrase, Hallelujah. The heavenly multitude within this hymn of worship invites the readers of Revelation to honor God, and they give a reason for why we should do so. God's judgments are true, and they reflect his righteous covenant commitment towards his people. That's just another way of talking about God's righteous deeds. God cannot allow evil to win, so he must punish evil and he must vindicate the innocent. 
within the narrative of the book of Revelation, Babylon is responsible for the deaths of many of God's people. Jesus himself is one of those persons that is among God's people that died as a result of Roman Babylon. Earlier in the book of Revelation, the voice of the martyrs cried out, asking when God would avenge them. This is in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. The book of Revelation depicts God as faithful to his people, even though the timing of those who read and participate in the singing of this worship hymn, to them, it might not look that the timing is appropriate. Within Revelation 19, the first three verses, we can see the call to the readers to participate in worship. The verse 4 tells us what that intended response actually looks like. Falling down, worshiping, and saying, quote, Amen, hallelujah, end quote. The shouting of Amen indicates that the worshipers, who are represented by the 24 elders, agree with the claims that God's judgments are true and righteous. Another reason is given for Revelation's readers, both past and present, to worship the true God, namely, God reigns. Yes, God is reigning in the present, according to this hymn of worship. Although the final consummated kingdom of God will see a time when God takes his great power and begins to reign in the fullest sense, according to chapter 11, verse 17, the kingdom has already been inaugurated with Jesus, who has been exalted to share in God's own rule and kingship. Jesus said in Revelation 3.21 that, I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne indicating that Jesus now shares in God's rule. The book of Revelation has already told its readers that Jesus is currently the ruler of the kings of the earth, chapter 1, verse 5. And believers have been redeemed and made into a kingdom, chapter 5, verse 10. There are many reasons to agree with this worship hymn that God is reigning in some sense already. Further worship is encouraged and reasons are given for why we should do so. The hymn tells us that we should rejoice. Rejoicing is just another word for celebrating. The worshipers are also invited to be glad. And being glad is the disposition of being exceedingly joyful. Lastly, the worshipers are to give God glory, which is to ascribe worth and value to him who is worthy. Now, why should we do these things? The hymn tells us the answer, which is that the marriage of the Lamb has arrived and the bride, namely the body of Christ, has made herself ready. 
the kingdom of God is frequently portrayed with the metaphors of wedding and marriage. And we can see this metaphor used in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So let's give you an Old Testament example from Isaiah 62. It will no longer be said of you, forsaken, nor to your land will it any longer be said, desolate. For you will be called, my delight is in her, and your land, married. For Yahweh delights in you, and to him your land will be married. That's Isaiah 62, verse 4. And within the teachings of Jesus, we could see in Mark 2, Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is still with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. That's Mark 2, verses 19 through 20, where Jesus indicates that while he is with his disciples, the bridegroom is present, which indicates wedding and marriage imagery. Now we've seen that the cause for celebration is that the bride has made herself ready, and she has done so by wearing appropriate clothes. Her clothing is bright and clean, and it is linen. And this is a kingdom-like wedding metaphor that regards her righteous deeds and her obedient works. Throughout the book of Revelation, clothing has been used to describe behavior, specifically the behavior that is appropriate for the churches that are already mentioned in the book of Revelation. Let me give you a couple examples of this. In chapter 3, we can see Jesus saying, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which are about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it, and repent. The passage goes on and says, You have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. That's Revelation 3, verses 1 through 4, where some people there, in Sardis, have not soiled their garments, which suggests that those who have accommodated and compromised have, in fact, soiled their garments. Their garments would not be white and clean. We can also see this in the last letter to the seven churches, Church to Laodicea, starting in verse 15. Jesus says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. That's Revelation 3 verses 15 through 17 to where Jesus indicates that their empty boast really is indicative of the fact that they are naked meaning they are not wearing the righteous, fine, white-linened clothing 
that represents obedient and faithful deeds. Jesus, of course, calls them to get clothing from him. So the righteous acts are specifically the deeds and works that are expected in the relationship between two parties. And there is a specific relationship within Christianity that is called the New Covenant. This is marked out with the teachings of Jesus that are to be obeyed as their faithful response to the initiative of salvation freely given by God. In regard to the book of Revelation, Jesus has specifically commanded that his bride is to do some very specific things. They are to maintain the preaching of the word of God. They are to demonstrate endurance in the Christian life. They are to refuse to compromise with sin and with false worship. And they are to remain faithful even if they have to die for their faith. In other words, participating in this hymn of worship would remind the singers that their Christian life and their worship go hand in hand. What they sing about and how they live are intertwined. And the hymns of worship within the book of Revelation, as we have noted, continue to persuade the ideal readers to live appropriately. So let's move us on to looking at the issues of monotheism. This is our third and final point, the implications for worship within a monotheistic setting. Within this hymn, in Revelation chapter 19, the object of worship is quite clear to discern. The object of worship is Yahweh alone. The Lamb is mentioned in regard to the wedding supper of the bride and the Lamb, but the Lamb is not actually worshipped. Only Yahweh is worshipped in this hymn of worship. And the Holy Spirit, again, is completely absent. Yahweh, in this passage, is defined as, quote, our God, end quote. And in the Greek, there's actually a definite article. It is more accurately translated as the God of us. We can see this phrase twice in verse 1 and verse 5. Perhaps there's another occurrence of it in verse 6, but there's a textual variant, so I'm not going to hang my argument on that. This God is described as the God who sits on the throne in 19 verse 3. Yahweh is further defined as a single person, as evidenced by the various singular pronouns. God's judgments are described as his judgments in verse 2. God's bondservants are described as his bondservants in verses 2 and 5. And Yahweh, the true God, is described with the singular pronoun him, specifically in verses 5 and 7. Of course, the Lord God is described as the Almighty, the Pantocrator. We can see this in verse 6. And just so there's no confusion, the Lord God is distinguished from the Lamb in 19 verse 7. 
the two persons are not collapsed into a single being, as if the Lamb was the Lord God by some strange circumstance. It does not seem that early Christians were uncomfortable using the divine name in their songs of worship, according to Revelation chapter 19. They drew on the various psalms of the Old Testament for their basis for calling God Yah, which again is a shortened form of Yahweh. There seems to be no hesitation in using the divine name here in Revelation 19. In fact, the phrase hallelujah appears four times over the course of these eight verses. It is also important to note that even after the ministry of Jesus, his death, resurrection, exaltation, and the giving of the Spirit, that Yahweh, or to be more specific, Yah is still, at this stage in Christian history, regarded as one single person. In conclusion, we have observed that the narrative of the book of Revelation offers a lengthy call-and-response hymn within the 19th chapter. The positioning of this hymn immediately after the chapter-long lament over the fall of Roman Babylon helps portray the contents of the singing in a positive light. We first noted that the heavenly hymn of worship deliberately contrasts the lamentation of Babylon's fall. Since it is clear that Revelation's ideal readers would not be participating in that lamenting dirge, it strongly suggests that they would instead set themselves in the midst of the chorus that sings Hallelujah. This is confirmed by the fact that the 24 elders who represent the conquering people of God are among those who respond to the summons to worship the true God. Second, we observe that the hymn of worship praised Yahweh for his righteous and just acts. By drawing attention to how God has already demonstrated his faithfulness to the covenant in dealing with evil, the worshipers can come to trust that he will do it again. Furthermore, the singers acknowledge that the bride of Christ, the church, is dressed appropriately for the wedding supper with their clothing symbolized by obedient deeds and good works. The singing of the worship hymn, therefore, calls those who participate to live righteously and in obedience to the directives contained within the book of Revelation, one of which is to refuse to participate in unauthorized forms of worship. Lastly, we noted that the object of worship in this particular hymn was Yahweh alone. While other hymns in Revelation are directed to both God and the Lamb, the hymn in Revelation chapter 19 is only addressed to God alone. This God is identified as Yahweh, 
and no reservation seems to be held by John the Revelator in bringing forth the name of God into the Greek text. Furthermore, Yahweh is defined with singular pronouns, singular verbs, and he is described multiple times as our God. The hymn of worship in Revelation chapter 19 demonstrates that at the end of the first century AD, the Christian understanding of Yahweh was consistent with its Jewish roots, namely that Yahweh is one person. The monotheism expressed in the hymn of worship located in Revelation chapter 19 is unitary monotheism. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Please look forward to our next episode. We will begin a new series looking at the highest expressions of Christology in the four New Testament Gospels in order to better understand the status of the human Jesus. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please consider supporting us as we promote the truths about God's oneness and the humanity of Jesus. You can share our episodes for free if you'd like to support, and if you care to offer a tip or donation, you may check out the episode's description for a PayPal link. Be sure also to check us out on YouTube. Search for the Biblical Unitarian Podcast for our new YouTube content. Special thanks given to our producer and editor, Dustin Williams, for his fine work week after week. My name is Dustin Smith, and until next time, you folks, please take care.